Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Skylight Bookstore Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Blackburn, and I'm here in Los Angeles, California. And today we are so excited to have author Jess Phoenix talking about her new book, Misadventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life. Today she'll be in conversation with Bronwyn Williams, who is an environmental scientist. As you know, you guys, we have these books, of course, available at Skylight Bookstore, and we sure do appreciate you guys heading over to skylightbooks.com and buying the book from us, because, of course, as you know, we are everyone's favorite neighborhood bookstore, even if you don't live in our neighborhood. We appreciate you guys supporting local bookstores, and we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in to the Skylight podcast. All right, you guys, today let's talk about Jess Phoenix. She's the executive director and co-founder of the environmental scientific research organization, Blueprint Earth. Now, since 2008, she's been a volcanologist, an extreme explorer, and a professional field scientist. And she works with universities and major research institutions to study lava flows and natural hazards, perform climate research on glaciers, and more. Jess is a fellow in the Explorers Club and the Royal Geographical Society, a featured scientist on the Discovery and Science channels, and her writing has appeared on websites like BBC Online, Daily Cause, and Medium, as well as in Face the Current magazine and local print publications. And like I said today, Jess will be in conversation. Yeah, and today Jess will be in conversation with Bronwyn Williams, who, like I said, is an environmental scientist who runs a student-centric research program with external funding from the National Science Foundation and National Geographic Society. All right, you guys, wherever you are, put your hands together for these two fabulous women, Jess Phoenix and Bronwyn Williams. Hi, thank you so much for, for listening, everyone who's here. And thank you, Skylight, for hosting and for Brenwyn for, for being here and doing this with me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I look forward to hearing some of your reading. Well, um, I, I was told that it's good to start with a reading. And since I don't get to do these in-person events, um, everything's digital. I, I figure, well, I can bring a little bit of the book uh, at home to people listening along. Um, so I have an excerpt and the only thing you need to know about this is that it is from when I was researching Kilauea volcano out on the lava flow fields there in Hawaii. And this was the first time I had encountered flowing lava and I had been walking around with another scientist named Matt Patrick there at the Hawaiian volcano observatory. So we were there to do some research and, uh, it was the hottest thing you can imagine. 
Matt gave me a few minutes to marvel at this deadliest of rivers before redirecting us to our task of locating an active flow. Another half mile or so of carefully hiking across the flow field, avoiding the dicey newest flows and checking the handheld GPS units with the most recent flow maps brought us to the edge of an oozing silver puddle that reminded me of a thicker version of the T-1000 Terminator in its liquid form. I gawked at the active Pahoehoe lava flow and Matt smiled. He seemed to appreciate my newcomer's enthusiasm. What I saw was something that my limited experience told me had no right to exist. Rock was solid, it was firm, if occasionally brittle. It was dependable. Houses, fortresses, tools, and weapons can be built from it. Rock was static. It changed only slowly, only with great effort or great force. Yet here I was, a few feet from silver rock that was clearly alive in a way that only science or wizardry could explain. While Matt dug the sampling supplies out of his pack, I thought about what it must have been like to grow up in Hawaii before modern science could explain volcanoes. Of course, a goddess would have been a logical explanation for ground that could give birth to itself, sometimes destroying lives in the process. What other than something divine could make the solid earth turn to liquid fire? Nudging me out of my reverie, Matt handed me a full face balaclava and silver gloves that were made for someone with much larger hands than mine. I donned the balaclava with care, leaving my sunglasses in place then I pulled on the gloves and assessed the heat-resistant silver. It matched the lava oozing in the background. Matt passed me a metal coffee can filled halfway with water and a rock hammer that I would use to pull off some of the molten rock. I approached the flow guardedly. My goal was to get close enough to stick the pointed pick end of the hammer into one of the flow's toes. As I drew closer, the heat grew more intense than anything I'd ever felt. The flow I was targeting was in excess of 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is nearly four times hotter than the highest setting on an oven. It seemed as if nature had hushed itself unbidden, except for my heartbeat, which was jackhammering in my ears. I paused, eyeballing potential targets and not wanting to get closer to that outrageous heat until I knew for certain where I would strike. I set the coffee can down behind me and decided on a nice fat lobe of lava about six feet away that was slowly blobbing toward my right foot. Faintly, I heard a tinkle that sounded like tiny pieces of glass being crunched ever so gently. The lava was making an almost musical sound as the new flow rolled over the older ground beneath. Between that and the radiating waves of heat that were hitting me full force, it felt like a dream. I couldn't take the heat much longer, so I clenched my teeth and stepped toward the flow, right arm extended with the hammer pick pointing down. Suddenly, my eyes felt like they were being sandblasted. At Matt's direction, I had kept my sunglasses on, so I tried blinking. The awful feeling remained, and I recognized my eyes were dehydrating. I needed to hurry or my vision might end up more compromised than it already was, and one errant movement could result in serious burns. I took one last step, shielded my eyes with my gloved left hand, enough to deflect some of the searing air, 
planted my right foot 10 inches from the flow and stuck the pick into the living silvery glob. Feeling no resistance, I pulled up slowly, straining against the heat to see what was happening on the end of the hammer. The lava followed the hammer's path, some of its sticky bulk attached to the pick with the rest fighting to stay part of the flow. The taffy from hell stretched vivid and red, the insubstantial silver crust broken by the hammer, the flow's dazzling scarlet insides exposed to the world. I kept pulling and freed a glob, the molten rock tendrils oozing back to the bulk of the flow. I pivoted, shaking the hammer to make the glob release its hold. It fell into the waiting coffee can and the water inside crackled to life, boiling instantly thanks to the scorching lava bleb I had dropped. Steam rose from the can as the sample was hyperclenched, solidifying it and preserving the information contained inside its primordial makeup. As soon as the boiling stopped, I picked up the can and rejoined Matt at a safe distance from the flow front, relieved to be in cooler air and ecstatic about all things lava. I couldn't stop grinning. We packed up the sample and trekked off to map the lava flow that was currently burning an isolated island of green amidst this sea of black. Thank you, Jess, for sharing that with us. Something that I really enjoyed when I was reading this book and kind of comes through in that passage is the powerful imagery um, of how you really transport the reader into the field and kind of we can immerse ourselves in, in your experiences. But at the same time, you snuck some really good science into there. For example, here you're talking about the methods and the sampling process. How did you tell where to tell your personal stories and where did you decide to include some of those scientific details? Well, I knew that I wasn't going to be writing a scientific tome um, at, because my career has, has shifted from straight research to one of, of research, but also science communication. So it was, I, I had to sit for each chapter and think like, yeah, all this cool stuff happened, but what's the point? Like, what was I actually trying to do there? You know, was, was there a scientific objective? And so each of the chapters was loosely staked around that idea that there would be um, something scientific. And then I could say, well, that's the whole reason I was there in the first place. Uh, <laughs> okay, great. Now I can, I can go in and, and I, it is tricky to try to balance. I mean, this stuff, sampling lava, the actual act of sampling is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's household equipment in a way. I mean, a rock hammer is not something everyone has at their house, but it's not exactly, you know, a mass spectrometer where people are like, what is that even? Um, so it was, that's a simple thing to explain. But when I was talking about sampling things like cosmogenic nuclides, I mean, most people's eyes roll back in their heads when you say those words, uh, you know, let alone, do they have any understanding of it? So it was tricky to say, it was kind of, it was really important that I say, all right, how would I explain this to somebody in like sixth grade or eighth grade? Um, somebody who has no interest in science, how do I make this sound cool and interesting? Because it is. It's just how do we get away from our scientist brain and say, all right, if I wasn't a scientist, how would I need someone to explain this to me? So that kind of takes me back to when you talked about when you first started college and you entered as an English um, major destined to become an English professor, which is clearly not an obvious pathway to where you've ended up now. If you could go back to your younger self, would you give yourself some advice? Um, and can you maybe kind of trace how you kind of transitioned into your, your current kind of 
current position? It was definitely a, a uh, jump sideways, um, definitely not forwards or backwards, because uh, I, I firmly believe that we scientists need the arts and humanities to interpret the data that we collect. I mean, that's what makes it um, palatable for humans. So for me, I, I thought that most jobs were desk jobs, unless you went into something like law enforcement. Both of my parents were in the FBI. So I saw that you could have an active desk job where most of the time you're doing paperwork and dealing with bureaucracy, but then sometimes you do go out in the field and do things. Um, but I knew I, I didn't want to be in law enforcement and I loved words. I love language. I still do. And I think it's that was just fundamental, but I'm also just insatiably curious. Uh, but I had been turned off from science in high school. I, I had a, a nun who was about to retire, who was my teacher for chemistry class, and she made me think I sucked at science. Um, so I, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could be a veterinarian someday, but probably not. I'll just go with this English thing because I can put words together okay. And, uh, and it was only by almost failing out of college that I found geology, and it was because after you know i'm type a and uh a lot of type a folks if we have a big time failure um we're pretty devastated and we're not used to it and so when i had this big time failure i kind of said oh my god you know i, I didn't know enough to seek really good mental health care for the depression i was experiencing so instead i i said well i'm gonna take classes that really speak to my inherent curiosity i'm going to nurture that to try to get back in the swing of doing school. And it worked. I mean, one of those classes was intro geology and it was the most boring lecture style you could imagine. I mean, you appreciate this, you're, you teach. <laughs> and if you have a professor, yeah, if you have a professor who turns around, shows you their back and just draws on an overhead projector for four hours of class on Wednesday nights, you will probably go into some sort of coma. But I went, Oh my God, you know, he's explaining why mountains are where they are and, and how the oceans, you know, came to be in the places where they're located and how volcanoes work and what do earthquakes actually mean? You know, and this was, it was like someone had just taught me an entirely new language and I was just so excited to go further. And I think the communication is at the heart of what I do, whether it was the English style of analysis and writing my thoughts on something or the scientific let me convey this information or the science communication, which sort of blends the, the arts and humanities with the sciences. So everything you learn in life is useful. You just have to figure out where to use it. Something you said at the, the start of that uh, was how you were turned off of science at an earlier age. And I think that that is not an uncommon experience for women in particular. Um, science has been traditionally a male dominated space. Um, and that's also kind of amplified with field work. Um, because fieldwork is very much a male-dominated space. So how do you think that being a female in this space um, kind of gave a flavor to your experiences? Um, do you think that if you were going through it now, starting over again um, with your first intro to geology course, it would be different? And what advice would you give to younger women who um, are thinking about fieldwork and geology? I think that's, you know, it is something that's important to think about uh, is just how, what role does gender or not considering gender play in, in the sciences? Because you're right. I mean, the field sciences, like a lot of times the entry level jobs are mud logging or, or core logging, which is basically where you're out on a drill rig with a bunch of um, 
of very rough people uh, in remote areas. And um, it would seem like a prime location to turn a lot of young scientists away from the field. Um, and then of course, any long expedition with a bunch of people who don't respect other people can be a nightmare. And that's regardless of gender, but particularly if there is a power imbalance, et cetera, et cetera. So with, with what my approach was, I, I was lucky. I always played sports with guys when I was growing up. Like I played baseball and football and basketball with like on all guys teams for quite a while. So for me, I, I had, I guess, developed a mechanism to fit in that, had, that served me well. But I also was, was very fortunate for most of my academic career to work with men who were extremely supportive, who would not say, um, oh, do you think you can do this? Like carrying something heavy or making a hike. And, and I, they would just go, great, here, you can carry the extra batteries. <laughs> they would just assume that I could. And I think that that's actually a, a good piece of advice for people who are mid-career or senior career who are working with younger scientists or students. Um, don't tell them that they can't do something. Offer them the possibility and then let them tell you what they need to make it happen. Uh, and that's why I, I founded the nonprofit that I run with my husband, Carlos, um, Blueprint Earth, because I saw, like I'd seen industry, I'd seen academia, and what I realized is that we were funneling so hard, whether intentionally or not, that we were getting basically white men still, uh, and we could do better. And so it, a lot of it's barriers to entry. So if you just open the door, people don't need you to you know, push them upwards. They need you to open the door, clear the path, and then watch what they do. So that's what we try to do a lot of is making research opportunities no cost and giving people pro tips. Like I didn't know, I mean, in the book, yeah, I talk about how I didn't know how to go to the bathroom outdoors. I mean, yeah, I was an athlete from the age of five onwards, but I never camped. So for me, that was a huge embarrassing thing. Like I don't want to talk about going to the bathroom with people I didn't know. And now when I have students in the field, um, I tell them like, look, here's this cool little device you can use to pee standing up and here's how you use it. And all sorts of exciting things. It's actually called the pee style. Um, they support Blueprint Earth, but they don't give us any money. So if you go and get a pee style, it's the letter P style. Um, it's great for people with mobility issues too. And if you go to concerts or festivals, not just camping, but that sort of thing can remove a lot of uncertainty and nerves for younger scientists. If you say, look, you don't have to squat, you know, with your butt exposed in the middle of nowhere, like you can, you can do this and you just give them little bits of wisdom, but you don't force it on them. You just let them know what possibilities are there. And I think that's how we change things. And that's what I would tell younger students is that um, look for the people who want to open doors for you. And, and the, the thing that I've said so many times, I feel like I'm gonna like, go to my grave saying it is, is don't work with people who refuse to admit they were wrong, will not say they're sorry, and will not say, I don't know. And, and because in a scientist, you know, you need people who say, I don't know, and then you have to go find the answer. That's the whole point. So look for the people who are willing to recognize themselves as human. <laughs> That's really powerful advice of how to find an effective mentor, because the role of mentoring, I think, is, is really critical to a lot of um, early career potential scientists. Um, your initiative, Blueprint Earth, just sounds amazing. Can you tell us more about it? Who are the people that are getting involved with doing fieldwork now that wouldn't have otherwise been able to do it? 
Well, the project itself is supposed to create blueprints of Earth's ecosystems, hence the name. Uh, and we started with the um, Mojave Desert in California. And it basically between LA and Vegas, there's endless paradise if you know where to look. And so in our research area, we're studying a square kilometer of uh, the Mojave Pres National Preserve. And there's there are lava flows there. There are bighorn sheep, foxes, um, I mean, flowing water with toads in it. Uh, it. It's just incredibly biodiverse for what people think of as a desert. And we, we the, the approach we took was to take scientists and students, so like students who want to be scientists, out to the desert and not charge them anything for the experience. So they get hands-on mentoring in very small, small groups because our, our expeditions are usually between eight and 20 people. I try to keep them between 12 and 16, ideally. Uh, but they get to work with scientists from all around the country and world. And because all they have to do is get to LA or Vegas, um, there's no, like, if you don't have a tent, that's fine. We have loaner tents. If you don't have a sleeping bag, we have loaner sleeping bags. Uh, we cook as, as a group. And obviously we haven't done anything since COVID last year, um, but uh, last January, January, 2020 was the last time we went on an expedition. But we've been doing a lot of data analysis since then. So still allowing the students to get hands-on experience. Um, and we hope to resume in the fall. But to date, we've had um, about 350 students come out with us and they are primarily women. 76% are women and 54% are people of color and 60% come from low income backgrounds. So that, that sort of number of the type of people who are coming out is just staggering. And we haven't kept records on how many students identify as having a disability, but I can tell you for a fact that we have had students with like real mobility challenges, including one student who was an amputee, a uh, leg amputee, and she made it out and was able to do field research with us. And it's just really spectacular to watch um, what people are capable of if you just give them the opportunity. That's really amazing because those environments are, are pretty extreme. Um, they're majestic, but we went to the Mojave for the first time this past winter and it can be a harsh landscape. So to, to put these students in that environment, as you said, it's not telling them what they can't do, but to say, how can we help you do this? That's yes. um, really powerful. Have you followed any of these students alum from the program to see <laughs> how this might've changed their trajectory? Oh my gosh, yes, it's, it's so cool. There's one student in particular who just comes to mind right away, um, actually two of them. I'll tell you about the one first, because um, his news was recent. Uh, his name's David and he came out with us um, pre-COVID, so it would have been two years ago, almost now, oh my God. <laughs> and David, David's story is very interesting. He was um, from the South, I forget which state, I think Arkansas, something like that. Um, but he, his birth family was not able to um, accept him as gay. So he left his birth family, was adopted. He's white, he was adopted by an African-American family, uh, made it to out to the Northwest to go to college, community college to work his way up and then uh, applied to University of Alaska Fairbanks to finish his degree, got in. This is after, like he was, he went there after he worked with us. Um, and then now he's got, just got accepted to their graduate program. So he, and he wants to study volcanoes. I mean, he has tattoos of Mount St. Helens before and after on his forearms. It's amazing. And, and seeing a student like that, uh, just have the ability to come work with us, see how actual scientists are in the field and say, yeah, this is exactly what I want for my life and turn 
turn his story into a success story. I mean, that was, that was him. That wasn't us. We just got to see him for one step along the way. And the other student, um, her name's Desiree. And I always think of her because she was on our first expedition that we ever did in early 2014. And, you know, I was nervous because I'm like, oh my God, I'm responsible for all these students. And, uh, you know, this is interdisciplinary science. It's not just geology where my, my comfort zone is. And so we're, when we got out there, um, I could see Desiree and her friend Brittany kind of transform. They're both uh, Latina and Desiree, I think she told me her parents hadn't been to college, um, you know, and so she was a first generation college student. And she and Brittany had both been in Cal State Los Angeles's nursing program. And when I interviewed them for a little promo video we were doing afterwards, uh, after the, the research was finished, I said to Desiree, you know, what did you, what did you get from this? You know, can you tell us what this has shown you? And she said, well, I thought that the only option for me was to be a nurse with a biology degree, but I just love this. This is incredible. And then she goes, I even got to break a rock with a rock hammer, but she ended up going to, um, she got her degree. She actually wants to be a, um, a coroner, which I think is very interesting, but in, on her way to that, she actually worked um, in the Grand Canyon as a wildlife biologist and then moved up to the Pacific Northwest recently. And she met her now husband on a Blueprint Earth expedition because she kept coming back for additional ones and her husband's a geologist. And so I got to see both of them as like baby ge geoscientists or scientists. And then now they're full-fledged scientists and they're living the dream. So it's just cool to see again, what people will do and the connections they will make if you just give them, give them an open door, that's it. And it seems like that also resonates with your own experience. You had um, a quote in the book where you said, you'd found a group of people who understand my burning desire to dig into the beating heart of our planet. Um, and that is something that I feel. Um, and some people I find they just inherently find value in our earth in itself. Others, I think, can grow to appreciate the earth, um, and others kind of remain indifferent and are disconnected from it. What type of people do you think your book is reaching, um, and how do you hope it's going to impact them? I've actually had some pretty surprising feedback uh, from people who have gotten the book, and <laughs> I guess it's sort of a compliment, but it sounds funny at first. I've had people say, I liked it way more than I thought I would. And I'm like, oh my God, thanks. Um, <laughs> but I think it's because a lot of people who like my work um, aren't hardcore scientists. I mean, they're, they're just regular folks and they think that science is scary and unapproachable. And especially the work that, that you do when you do field science, because you go to such remote, dangerous places that most people have never even thought about. Um, and, and I think that when they say that, I take it as, your curiosity came through to me. And so they connected with that curiosity. And I, I do think that every single person has a fire of curiosity burning within them. Um, and, and it's up to us, all of us, uh, to keep that flame going, not just for kids and the next generation, but within the adult population too. So I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people who wouldn't normally pick up a science book uh, and, and people who've said, um, you know, I've read this or that expedition book before, but you know, yours blended the science in and that actually made it more interesting. Um, and I have had a lot of people say, I gave it to my 11 year old, at which point I go, oh, there's cursing in this book. Uh, <laughs> but hey, you know what, the words exist and oftentimes scientists use them. Um, but yes, there, there is cursing in the book, a little bit, not a ton. Uh, but they say, oh, my 11 year old daughter was so inspired. And I've actually heard from 
I finally figured out how to check my DMs on Instagram, which I didn't know how to do, which is hilarious. Uh, but I, I got some messages from people who said, I started going to school um, for, for geology or for a science, and then I stopped because motherhood or paying the bills or just life got in the way. And now I'm in my 30s and I want to go back to school and you just inspired me so much. And those make me want to cry <laughs> because it's like, I didn't set out trying to be an inspirational person. I set out to do things that I thought were interesting. And um, here we are. And, and I know that I'm not inspirational. It's the way that I can show people that they can interact with their own curiosity. That's the inspirational part. <laughs> I love that being curiosity driven. Um, your chapter about your experience with the Discovery Channel, um, the, the conflicted nature of that interaction comes through, I think a lot in the words. Um, how do you view that now that a few years have passed since you did that um, and thinking about the role of those types of programs in science communication, but at what cost? Yeah, that program itself, that was um, pretty disastrous. Uh, I will say that since then I have made other programs with Discovery, including I've got a new show with them that, and this is exciting for me because most of their hosting is done by older white men um, or just younger white men, but white men. Uh, now the show that I'm co-hosting for them that launches in May, it's going to be called Hunting Atlantis. Um, I'm the scientist on the show and I'm working with a wonderful uh, man named Stel Pavlo and Stel is a person of color and he is an Atlantis expert. So we actually get to go and talk to experts in archaeology and, and marine archaeology. It's so cool. And of course we scuba dive and repel and you know it's it's kind of awesome uh, actually but discovery has changed and that's the thing to remember is that you know these tv networks these outlets for the media they go through cycles and discovery when i worked on trailblazers which was that first disastrous show um, the person who was in charge of running that show was not a scientist, did not understand science, and did not actually want to see science. Uh, and, and so now when I go in, I've learned. I mean, you learn, again, you learn from everything you do. And so I am able to, when I have projects come my way, if people approach me, I say, all right, well, what level of input are you willing to take? Because, I mean, you can probably imagine how many TV people have approached me over the years and said, we want to do volcano hunters. And I'm like, you can't do that because every country that has um, an active volcanoes near populated areas has their own scientists and their own observatory. And they don't need, you know, white North American savior parachuting in to save the day. Like I could do a show with volcanoes around the world, but you have to let me put the other people, the locals on camera because they're the ones with the actual knowledge. And I've had people actually respond at these TV networks. I was able to, um, with the Science Channel, uh, when I was filming in Tanzania about, um, there's a volcano there that erupts white lava. It's natrocarbonatite, totally different type of lava than other any other volcano on earth. Uh, it's also a sacred volcano to the Maasai tribe. And the Science Channel was nice enough to record me asking the Maasai elder for permission for the blessing to go up to the volcano and put that on screen. And just that little bit of acknowledgement goes a long way. And that's why I was willing to consider it when they approached me again about hosting this, this Atlantis program. Because I said, you know what? We can infuse this myth uh, of Atlantis with actual hypothesis testing. And that's what Stell wanted to do with the show. And we, I think we've accomplished that, where we're actually seriously considering different, different ideas. And so I'm hopeful that Discovery will go back a little bit more towards 
educational and scientific programming as well as just like Alaska Bush people, <laughs> which are entertaining in their own right. But, you know, we need to get science in the public eye. And it means that I would be a big proponent of graduate programs and even undergraduate programming programs offering their students a media class, like just at least one, so that scientists might know how to talk to the media better. Because if we don't advocate for ourselves, we don't get funding, we don't get attention for the important issues we're researching. And I tell my students, if you can't explain why what you're studying matters in 30 seconds to just a regular person, I'm sorry, but you're you're not doing a good enough job of communicating your science. So I make the practice. <laughs> That's great. I, science communication is really important. Do you, are you able to embed that into the Blueprint Earth um, program as well in the summer? Yes, a lot of times I'll I'll be out there with a student and I will I'll give them a little I'll say okay let's shoot a little video and I'll have them film me doing something like there's one somewhere buried on my Instagram where I say today we're gonna drop acid in the desert because that's what scientists do because we actually use hydrochloric acid to test whether rocks are made of carbonate material so it it sounds funny it's catchy and then you get to show something actually happening. When the students realize you can infuse your science communication with humor, then, you know, once they go, oh, I see, then I turn the camera on them and I'll say, why don't you practice? Tell us what that plant is over there and why it's cool, you know? And we do little moments of that amidst the uh, serious research and the laughing and joking and, you know, discussing too much about bodily functions, which always happens on expeditions. <laughs> So something I was wondering is you have so many great stories in here. I love the layout, how kind of each chapter is a story. Do you have any stories that didn't make the final cut of the book? Yes, so many. <laughs> and I and I had to leave Blueprint Earth out. I, I considered it, but what I realized with that is there's a big cast of characters in each episode. So it's very hard to wrangle a narrative that has like 20 people in it. Um, and I thought, well, also Blueprint Earth probably deserves its own um probably collection of short stories for the weird stuff i mean we have a story we tell all the new students who come out about the naked hobo we encountered <laughs> the first time we were in the desert in the middle of nowhere so the naked hobo story is like a long-standing story and that at some day will have to get written down um and then we had to we tried to catch a bat in a gas station once you know with a group of blueprint earth students and we had a giant net out and we were in this gas station in baker california with a net playing bat calls on our phone and I mean, we have just tons of funny things like that. Um, I would love to get those down someday. And yeah, I don't even touch on Europe or Africa or Southeast Asia where I've done work um, or Central America. So there hopefully will be another book. Uh, should people actually support this one and there's a demand for it, I would, I would be happy to write another. <laughs> I was thinking as you were talking, it sounds like there's a sequel that's kind of percolating in your brain already. <laughs> Uh, you talk about the, the cast of characters and it, a theme throughout the book is diversity, both in terms of gender, but also racial identity. Um, it comes up with your discussion about the Explorers Club and a little bit about your husband. How do you think that your own racial identity um, shaped your experiences as well as those that you interacted with? Well, being white is a huge privilege, which I think a lot of people even if they don't want to recognize it right away, if you think about it, it really it, it is it is and even when I'm in, um, you know, it can be a liability when you're in areas where there may be conflict uh, and violence because you're a very attractive hostage <laughs> if you are a white female, uh, you know, and, and or just white in general. And so for me, it's always been 
something that I'm conscious of. And I think that was the case be even before I met Carlos, who is Latino, um, because I was teaching at Cal State LA. And I grew up in a really white neighborhood in Littleton, Colorado, like very, very heavily um, homogenous. And when I started, you know, when I left that area and started to, you know, expand my horizons, I realized, oh yeah, guess what? The things that we learned about in history books aren't in the past. And we actually need to address these issues. And we need to, if you have a place of privilege, like I do, um, it's really important to suggest other people to step in and take opportunities. So now I try when um, people contact me, uh, like TV producers or radio folks, and they need that they know that I have a Rolodex and uh, well, a digital one. And um, just recently, I got a request. Oh, do you know any black female marine biologists? And I went, yes, here's three. <laughs> and and so that's what I like to do now because representation matters. And yes, getting me out there hosting a discovery show is a big deal, but I, I am still fairly within the bounds of normal uh, for typical viewing audiences. So I would love to see scientists with accents, scientists with disabilities, um, scientists who are trans, non-binary. I would love to see all of those people represented because unless we have all hands on deck, we can't solve big picture problems like climate change or overpopulation or food insecurity. Like we need everybody's wisdom. So I'm acutely aware of that. And uh, Carlos and I are in the process of adopting a kid who is African-American. So now we're having to contend with the, you know, okay, I get perceived as the, by the police as totally non-threatening, but Carlos and our kid, very different ballgame. So I have to consider these things in our daily lives now and, uh, and just think about how I can use my privilege to open doors for other people. Congratulations on the adoption. Um, your book, like one of the ideas that comes through a lot is the role of the mentors in your life. And listening to you in this conversation, what I appreciate now is that now you've become the mentor um, to a whole new generation of scientists and the way that you're changing the, the face of people doing science and science communication and the way that you're elevating these people. Um, and I, I hope that sticks with everybody because it's so important, as you say. Um, and I think that might be a great note to end on. So I really enjoyed speaking with you, both reading the book myself and then having this additional insight. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Thank you. And if you have any students from your programs who you want to send out with Blueprint Earth, or if you want to come out, we would love to have you. <laughs> I think you might be hearing from me. Yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> this has been such a great discussion, boy. I have learned so much. Jess, you are an amazing person. And I'll tell you, Bronwyn, you asked some great questions. So thank you both so much. And thanks to the Skylight Podcast audience. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. Remember to give us five stars over there, wherever you're listening, and give us a good review as well. And you can purchase, uh, you can purchase Jess's brand new book, Misadventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life, right here at skylightbooks.com. And we do appreciate you guys shopping at Skylight Bookstore, your favorite neighborhood bookstore, even if you don't live here. All right, you guys, one more time on behalf of the very talented Jess Phoenix and also Bronwyn Williams. My name is Christine Blackburn for Skylight Books saying read on. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.